Father, as we look at your word this morning, help us to see the things you want to see. Help us to gain heaven's perspective on the things that occupy our time here on earth. In Jesus' name, amen. We're in another topical study this morning. I, I confess sometimes I love topical studies if they're things I thought a lot about and uh, they're the most challenging things um, also at times. This is a challenging two-part uh, study uh, on citizenship. And even as I say that, I feel like it sounds boring. And uh, theologically, actually, if I say that theologically we're going to talk about it, that might even make it sound more boring. Uh, it's not. It's vitally important. But uh, this is a, it's a huge subject. It's a huge issue, and it affects us every day. In fact, I'd say as Christians in the United States... <clears throat> This idea of citizenship is a trump card that's often played, sometimes misappropriately, I think, not appropriately. Um, It's an area that requires clear thinking and clear biblical thinking to get, I think, a good sense of what is God's perspective on citizenship. And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning. A citizen comes from a Latin word, civis. This is really exciting stuff for us. Civis, Latin. You know, to show you how boring I am, I love looking at the dictionary. Words and their meanings, that's, that excites me. But civis, and it just comes from the term city. And in long days gone by, you know, there weren't generally large nations the way we think of nations today. There were city-states. So you'd have a walled, protective city with its king and its surrounding environment, and that was a nation. That was a city-state. And to belong to one of those cities, that was your citizenship. You identified yourself by the city you belong to. Typically today, we identify citizenship with the country you're born in or the place you live and grow up in. And that's all appropriate and that's all a good thing. Um, But maybe still leaves you a little bored. If I use a term like patriotism, uh, people feel a little more emotional, especially in these days, you know, because of terrorism and because of attacks on the United States. Uh, In the past, it might have been easy to say things that would have been, at least had the appearance of being not a good patriot in the United States. But since 9-11, a couple years ago, everyone wants to be perceived as a patriot. And a patriot is a citizen, but it goes a little further because patriot comes from the Latin and Greek pater, which you all knew, father. And it means love of the fatherland, love of the place where your fathers came from love of the place, your, your uh, original home, you could say. Patriotism, a little more emotional term. Patriots, if I use the term, I think, especially in American culture, folks like Nathan Hale or George Washington, both godly guys who were instrumental in the formation of the United States, something God was clearly at work at. And these were guys who loved their fellow men and had this important role in the formation of a new nation. Patriotism is a is a good uh, emotionally laden term in that sense. Uh, But as C.S. Lewis said uh, once, years ago, he said, for most of us, it's not that we're too passionate about things, that our problem is, you know, we uh, tend to be lustful creatures, and he said, that's really not your problem. Your problem isn't that your passion's too great, it's that it's too small, and that it's too small directed towards the wrong objects. And so this morning, hopefully, we'll develop a little more passion in a biblical sense, for an appropriate kind of citizenship 
or patriotism. And the kind of citizenship and patriotism I want to talk about this morning is, I would argue, the most critical because fundamentally it is the most important, and it is the most important because it is eternal, and that is uh, heavenly citizenship. That's what we'll be looking at this morning. This is the theological side of the citizenship. Actually, we'll look at this again next week at, uh, I guess we would consider a more practical level, a little bit more of the, not mundane, but the day-to-day ways that citizenship affects the way a Christian interacts with the world around them. But this morning, we'll kind of lay the groundwork for that in the larger scale or the bigger picture. In Paul's day, you know, Paul who authored most of the New Testament, Paul was a Roman citizen. Paul was a Roman citizen. Most of us are citizens of the United States, and as a citizen, there are just a lot of things we take for granted. Paul was a citizen of Rome, and even though many around the world would think to be a citizen of the U.S. was a big thing, to be a citizen of Rome in Paul's day would have been of much more value than even being a citizen of the United States or some other wealthy Western nation. If you were a citizen in Roman days, you had rights and privileges that no one else had, and frankly, they could not aspire to. And yet, when Paul speaks of citizenship to Christians, he does not talk about Roman citizenship. He talks about a heavenly citizenship. Listen to what he says in Philippians 3. Now, he's been talking about godless self-serving church leaders. That's the context of this statement. And in that context, he's talking about them. He says, their end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. These godless church leaders were setting their mind and their affections on the things around them on the earth. He says in verse 20, in contrast to that, our citizenship the place we call home, our government, the place we receive our uh, information or directives from, is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So here's Paul, citizen of Rome, the best citizenship you could have on earth at the time, who tells Christians, our citizenship is in heaven. That's our key citizenship. So in contrast to the godless church leaders who are emphasizing earthly citizenship and its pleasures, Paul emphasizes heavenly citizenship and its responsibilities. And I guess my bottom line for this morning would be that is the biblical emphasis. It's the one we need to start with and end with when we're thinking about citizenship in general. Uh, I'm going to be looking at several scriptures. You guys can turn to them or not as you like. In Ephesians 2, Paul continues this same thought. If you ask God today, God, what citizenship is important? As God looks down on the world and we think of the kinds of divisions you can come up with on the earth, God's idea of class distinction is a little different than ours. In fact, frankly, for the most part, you do not see him making much of which specific nation any one of his children belongs to. That is not his emphasis. Listen to what is. Ephesians 2, Paul speaking to Gentile Christians in Ephesus. He says at verse 11, Remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, and I'm going to kind of skip through this passage, that you were at that time separate from Christ, 
excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, where God's name was known and revered, you were strangers to the covenants of promise. God was in a covenant relationship with Israel, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ, you who formerly were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Verse 14, he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one. Jews and Gentiles are the two distinct groups. He broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. Uh, He made two into one new man. What I want to get out of this is this. When God looked down at the earth in the Old Testament days, he saw Israel and the Gentiles. And the Gentiles were without God and without hope. And it didn't matter which nation or ethnic group they were part of. God looked and saw two camps, Israel and the Gentiles. And Israel was important because it's where God made himself known. And if you were a Gentile in those days, the the way to come to the knowledge of God was to come to Israel. So he looked down at that time and said, you're in relationship with me through my covenant people Israel, or you're out. To be out is to be without God and without hope. To be in is at least to have the potential to have a personal relationship with the living God. That was in Israel. Paul here says... In Jesus' death and resurrection, God has now done something that had not been done before. He's removed this partition that separated Israel from the nations. Because after all, God told Abraham, the head of the nation of Israel, that the reason he would call out this nation was to be a light to the Gentiles. It wasn't to keep the Gentiles out. It was to be this city on a hill from which the Gentiles would see God and want to come to him. So that in Christ's death and resurrection, God says, I've removed the barrier. But there's still this issue. See, now the division between Jews and Gentiles is gone. He says he's created one new man. That one new man is the church. But now God looks down from heaven and he says the same thing. It's not Israel anymore. It's the church. And now when God looks down on heaven, the citizenship he's concerned with is, are you in the church or are you out? And it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile today. If you're without God, you are without hope. See, the important citizenship is, are you in personal relationship with God or not? It's light and darkness. You're in or you're out. There's no in between. That's the citizenship or the distinction that God makes much of in the New Testament. The terms used in the New Testament... Gentile is ethnos, which just means ethnic groups or nations. And when it says Greeks, which it'll mention in some of these later passages, Hellene or Hellenic uh, just means Greeks. Greek was a synonym for Gentile in those days because that was the world that the Roman um, Greek culture had been taken over by Rome. And to call someone a Greek or a Roman was in essence the same thing. A Gentile or a Greek was all the same thing. For a Jew, from Jewish perspective, they were those outsiders. So the world was Old Testament and New divided by, are you in God's camp with his people or are you outside? It's not which little group of the Gentiles you're in. Who cares? Any of them meant to be without God and without hope, in contrast to being in relationship with him. So that in God's economy, the great division between people is not primarily ethnic and it's not geographic. It's spiritual. 
The citizenship God is concerned with for you and I and anyone else today is primarily spiritual. He says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 10. When Paul is telling these former pagan Christians how to think and how to interact in the Gentile world around them, they're having troubles. They don't know what to do with the pagan culture and the idols and the temple worship and meat sold in the marketplace. They're trying to get all this figured out. And at the end of this discussion, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God, that's one thing, and as far as, as, far as it's possible on your part, give no offense to Jews or to Greeks, any Gentile, or to the church of God. Again, looking from God's perspective down, he still identifies the Jewish group because at this point, remember, the gospel's still going out, uh, kind of like if you and I were tenants in a building and someone was going to change our uh, legal agreement. Before they offered that space we were renting to someone else, they'd tell us about it. And that's what God did for the Jews. He was in a covenant relationship with the Jews so that each time the gospel was preached in a new place, if there was a Jewish group, they were the ones to hear the gospel first. And then the message would go to the Gentiles. But the point is the same here, that God was looking down saying the distinction that was important was not ethnic. It was spiritual and it was related to whether or not you were a citizen of his group or if you were still on the outside. This is why I think it's helpful if you, uh, to know how to be a good citizen locally, you've got to step far enough back to get the wide perspective of citizenship in general. <clears throat> and in the end, <clears throat> in God's economy, the citizenship is spiritual because in the end, it's not a matter of nation against nation. It's really a matter of kingdom against kingdom. And in God's economy, you're either in the kingdom of heaven, led by his son, the Lord Jesus, or you're still in the kingdom of Satan, led by Satan himself personally, and overseen by his demons. Uh, Paul calls Satan in Ephesians 6, he says he's the God, the ruler of this world. So that whatever nation you live in in the, in the world, Satan is in a subset under God's sovereign rule. Satan is the ruler of this world. He still is. In fact, in the temptation scenes in the Gospels, Satan tells Jesus, if you'll worship me, I will give you the kingdoms of the world. Jesus does not argue the point that they're not his to give. They were. When Adam and Eve chose to follow and trust Satan, they de facto handed the rule or the authority of earth to Satan. And he is still the God of this world. So that the citizenship thing, if we take the big step back, we look and we say, you're a citizen of the kingdom of heaven or you're a citizen of this world ruled by Satan. Those are the two big areas of citizenship. And you're in one or you're the other. And you can be a Christian in any nation of the world. It doesn't matter. You're a citizen of heaven. Or you can be an unbeliever still rejecting the claims of Christ in any nation of the world and be in the kingdom of darkness. 
God sees citizenship primarily as are you in or out of his kingdom. In fact, in Colossians 1, Paul says this about God and our salvation. He says, he delivered us from the domain of darkness, the kingdom of darkness, and he transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So citizenship in the end, it's about whose kingdom are you in? Are you still in Satan's kingdom ruled by him? Or have you, as Colossians 1 says, have you been transferred by faith in Christ out of that kingdom into the kingdom of heaven? Your primary citizenship, the country and kingdom you're first and foremost to represent and live for on earth is not an earthly kingdom. It's actually a heavenly kingdom. If you ask the question, in what role or why do we have nations the way we do today? Uh, I won't, we won't answer this certainly entirely at all today, but I do want to give you at least one perspective on this. Apart from God's intervention, I'm sure that just with the development of man through the ages, we would have nations, we would have different ethnic groups. However, God is the first and the greatest nation builder. We talk about that in the United States today, nation building. God was the originator of nations. And the reason, biblically, that he began nations was not a positive one, it was a negative one. And if you want, turn to Genesis 11. This is the beginning of the nations as we know them today. The whole earth used the same language and the same words. And it came about, verse 2, as they journeyed east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And by the way, that would be modern day Iraq. They said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone and they used tar for mortar. And they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven and let us make for ourselves a name, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Now, if you read this without context, this sounds innocent enough. It's not. This was in direct contradiction to God's command to man to spread over the earth. And what man was doing here was saying, we're not going to spread out. We feel vulnerable and weak. We're going to build our own city, our own nation. And this tower to heaven and this name, we're going to have a rallying point. We're going to stick our thumb in God's eye and tell him how it is. We're going to create our own kingdom. That's what this was. There was no doubt in God's mind what was going on, nor in theirs. This was direct disobedient to God's command to move across the face of the earth. Look at God's response. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people. They all have the same language. And this is what they've begun to do, begun to do. And by the way, in history since, the history of mankind at one level is the desire of men to build their own nation, their own city-state. And in fact, if you read the end of the story in Revelation chapter 17 and 18, probably no coincidence, the city-state that represents the culmination of man's evil in the future is Babylon, the same place geographically of Babel. And it is man's attempt to build his own kingdom and in both cases, inspired by Satan. So God says here, this is what they have begun to do. This is rebellion in its inception. This is the beginning stages. Nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible to them. Why? Because they're all together with one common language and one ability to work together as a unit. 
So God's response is, come, let us go down and confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. God is the original nation builder, but not for the reasons we might think. This division of man into nations was to stop the progress or slow the progression of man's evil. This is like wrapping apples in wraps so that when you store them together and they begin to rot, they don't rot one another. This wasn't because this was a great thing on its own merit. This was the slowing of the process of moral decay. God is separating people out So he'll slow down this process of rebellion. And when there was one language, there was nothing to slow that down. And so God says, I've got a solution for this short term, temporarily. I'm going to create all these ethnic groups. They won't be able to interact with each other. That's going to slow the process of evil, the development of corporate evil on the earth, in mankind. And it's interesting, again, in the end, uh, chapter 12 of Daniel... When it describes the end of time before the Son of Man returns to the earth, that time is characterized by rapid movement and the increase of knowledge and communication. And that's exactly where we find ourselves today. And as the barrier that is language is lowered, man's ability to interact rises and man's progress in evil rises. So God, the original nation builder, built nations, started them to slow the process of evil. Now when Paul talks to the Greeks in Athens in Acts 17, he tells us God is still in charge. Paul says there to the Greeks, He, God, made from one, that is Adam, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. Again, if you remember a study through Daniel... uh, quite a while ago, we saw that God not only prophesied, but he controlled the rise of these world powers through time. It wasn't just accident which ruler came to power or which nation was in control. God was overseeing that, but it was sovereignly to establish his purposes. So God was the original nation builder. He is still the one who oversees nations geographically and the time in which they exist or live. So he started them, he continues to oversee them, but again, generally, not because that's such a great thing in itself, but it's a a process of slowing the development of evil in men. So, you and I today live in this sort of a netherworld where you are a citizen of heaven if you've come to faith in Christ, and you also occupy dual citizenship by being a citizen of an earthly kingdom as well. We happen to be in the United States, but this would be true of any Christian in any nation on the earth. Now, there is a great example in the Bible of this, and that is Abraham, and I'll just mention him briefly. Listen to what Hebrew says about Abraham. Here's a guy that God said, leave your fatherland, Ur. And he comes through Haran, and he comes down to the land of Canaan, and God said, you go there, and I'll make you a father of many nations, and I'm going to give you this land. 
But listen to how Abraham's view of this promise and an earthly citizenship is viewed by him. He says, the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 11:9, by faith Abraham lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land. This is his land. He lives as a foreigner, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Abraham was promised an earthly kingdom. He was promised a piece of geography in the Middle East. Christians, by contrast, have never been promised this. We've been promised persecution and trouble on planet Earth and a better life to come in the future. But Abraham, even knowing that God's promise to him was geography, a piece of land, it says when he lived there, his attitude was, I'm not a citizen of the Middle East. He was not satisfied with this little strip along the Mediterranean coast. And he knew that God was up to something bigger and better than that little piece of real estate. And so Abraham, even though God promised him that geography in the Middle East, Hebrew says he was actually living like a foreigner and a pilgrim in a land that he wasn't a resident of, even though he was the owner of all of it, because he was looking forward to the kingdom, the heavenly kingdom, the heavenly city that he knew God was about to build. So even though he was in the place God promised him, he said, it ain't good enough because I know God's got something bigger and better. If that was true of Abraham, how much more should that be true of you and I who are not promised an earthly kingdom? Not. Christians are not promised an earthly kingdom, but trouble. We were at the Nelson Art Gallery yesterday, and one of the great pictures we looked at was a picture of, uh, it's called the Saint's Last Prayer, and it's of Christians being martyred in the Colosseum. That's what Christians were promised. No earthly kingdom and no earthly wealth or riches or great citizenship but trouble and persecution. How much more should we have this pilgrim mentality that the earth is not my home? And citizenship, even in the U.S. or Western Europe or parts of South America, think of the loveliest, wealthiest, freest places on earth. We should still, much more than Abraham, have that thought, Lord, I know you're up to something bigger and better than citizenship here on the earth provides me. And that's what I'm really looking forward to. And that's where my heart is really set. I ask myself when I read this, do you and I look like Abraham's nephew Lot or like Uncle Abe? Think of this for just a second. They leave Haran together. But their crews get too big to live harmoniously side by side, so they divide. And Lot looks around at the greenest, lushest place his eyes can see. Wealthy, good food, fun places, probably a lively nightlife. Kansas City, New York, whatever. And he chooses those plains down there, those cities in the plains, Sodom and Gomorrah. And what's he do? He settles down. He becomes a good citizen. Now, Peter does tell us that his soul is tormented, but the point here is that nephew Lot makes his home in a city that's not his home. Uncle Abe, to whom the promise was given, 
See, he still lives like a pilgrim. He's still a nomad in the land that belongs to him. And I ask myself and you, do you, do I, do we look like Lot? Or do we look like Abe? Are we settled down as citizens in the godless nations in which God has distributed his Christians, like Lot in Sodom? Or are we like Abe, these pilgrims that know we're here for a short while, we're moving through, and we've got some work to do while we're here, Abraham does rescue Lot, by the way. But this is not our home. This is short. This is temporary. If we say, okay, we're citizens here, we're Abraham, we're pilgrims, we get that, and we're moving through. Well, Lord, what what does that mean as pilgrims and citizens but aliens? What does that look like? I want to suggest two passages. They say essentially the same thing. One is Matthew 28. When Jesus, the Son of Man, conquers sin and death and rises from the dead, before he returns to heaven, he gathers his little crew, and he's on a mountain, and this is what he says. This is called the Great Commission. Matthew 28, 18. Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. All authority. This means he's more important than the president, than any dictator, He has more authority than any Congress and any Parliament. His is the ultimate and final authority. And speaking as the final authority on planet Earth or in heaven, he says, go and make disciples of all ethnos, all nations, all Gentiles, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, And I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. So as a citizen of heaven, here is King Jesus, your king and mine, the king of all those who've called on his name for salvation. He's the king of the new Jerusalem. He's the commander of the hosts, the armies of the Lord. He's the head of his body, the church, all of which you remember if you've come to know him in salvation. And he enlists all his own, his citizens in the work, of calling all men, all women, all children, all humanity to turn from the kingdom of darkness and embrace citizenship in the kingdom of light. That's what your citizenship and mine in heaven calls us to do. As citizens of heaven, citizens of the kingdom of light, King Jesus says, I have commissioned you and you're to go among all the nations and make disciples. And making disciples means you call those people out of darkness into light. They leave citizenship in Satan's kingdom, and they become citizens in my heavenly kingdom. Or listen to Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says when a person trusts in Christ, exercises faith in Christ, he says at verse 17, they're a new creature. They are something they were not before. The old things have passed away and new things have come. All these things are from God who reconciled us, we who were without him and without hope in the world, reconciled us to himself through Christ, and he's given us the ministry of reconciliation, that is the gospel. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Again, this is the gospel. Paul says it's been commissioned, it's been handed to you as a believer. You're commissioned. 
And he closes with this, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were entreating, entreating through us, we beg on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Paul says, as a citizen of heaven, living on planet earth, I am an ambassador. My true citizenship is in heaven. Heaven is my home. But I am a representative sent from God to work in the nations of the world to tell people about this reconciliation in which they can be reconciled, brought into right standing, back with God. That is your role. That's my role. It's not just to be a good citizen in the little nation we're a part of, little or big. You're an ambassador of heaven. So your calling is to share the gospel, go and make disciples, followers of Jesus Christ. That is our commission. Disciple makers, ambassadors, citizens of heaven, representing heaven and its kingdom and its claims to those on earth who are still outside of God's kingdom. So that in the end, ultimately, you and I don't serve a king on earth and we don't serve a president on earth although we'll talk more about that next week, the practical applications of earthly, local citizenship. But ultimately, you are citizens of heaven representing King Jesus' interests on earth. That's your role. Like Abraham, you're a citizen in a place, but you're looking to your real home. It sounds odd to say, but I like to tell people when I'm talking about this, God is not an American God is not an American. We tend to entertain a thought as citizens of the United States that God is an American. He is not. He wasn't born American, and his plans for the world far exceed the gross domestic product of the United States and our trade and you name it. He's not an American, and his goal is not limited to the United States or to North America. In fact, in Revelation, it says, speaking of redemption, that God is calling to himself people from every tribe and race and tongue and kindred. God was the original nation builder. He dispersed. Remember Genesis 11? God is also the great nation builder in the future because now he's pulling from those diverse groups, people, not just from around your neighborhood and mind here, but from every ethnic group on the earth. God's pulling a people for his own name for his own body, for his purposes. That's what he's doing. God is not an American, ugly or handsome. Let me close uh, by talking about a patriot. This is an American patriot. This is kind of odd. There's not a whole lot available on this guy, but what, what is available is interesting. The guy I want to close with, just as an example, is Nathan Hale, the guy I mentioned at the beginning. Nathan Hale is remembered as a great American patriot And it's a little ironic because of how little he did and how unsuccessful he really was. Now, he was a bright young guy. I think he was born in 1755. Bright young guy, uh, was born sixth of 12 children into a relatively uh, affluent family, very godly parents, very godly young man, went to Yale at 14, graduated at 18, and immediately became a teacher. And he loved it. But then along came the Revolutionary War. And so he enlisted, and he enlisted as a sergeant, and then he was promoted to a lieutenant. 
So he's in the Continental Army, and if you look at his army record, frankly, there ain't much there. He was involved in no major battle. It's not clear at all that he saw any combat whatsoever. There's a story that perhaps he and some others raided a British ship to steal supplies that they needed, stuff like food and clothing and some guns and ammunition, but that's not even sure. This is a guy who probably didn't fire a shot and wasn't shot at. He was not part of any significant battle. He was spoken well of by his superiors, and he was spoken well of by those men that served under him. He was a godly guy, and he had a great outlook. There came a day when George Washington told his sub-commanders that with the few men they had to defend New York from the British, they were going to have to get better information because they were going to have to take their small ragtag group and defend a lot of territory against a much greater British force. They needed information. So Nathan Hale's commander asked for volunteers who would be spies who would slip behind the British lines into New York and would gather information on what the British were up to. He had, his commander, Knowlton, had no volunteers. And the reason was not courage. It didn't have anything to do with courage. The reason was because being a spy was not seen as a noble thing. This was the day when armies faced one another face to face, breast to breast, and shot at one another in the open field. And being a spy, this slippery creature slipping behind lines, and <clears throat> this was seen as not a gentleman's calling. He volunteered, and a friend of his tried to change his mind. And this is what he said, <clears throat> I wish to be useful. Every kind of service necessary to the public good becomes honorable by being necessary. If the exigencies of my country demand a peculiar service, spying, its claim to perform that service are imperious, must be obeyed. I have no choice. I have no option. He said, if this is needed for the public good, for the advancement of my earthly kingdom, I have no choice. I must volunteer. <clears throat> so Nathan Hale gets out of his uniform, puts on his teacher's clothing, and slips behind British lines in the New York area. He's not there long, and the story is that after he gathered the information he could, he was hailing a rowboat that he thought was his pickup, and it wasn't. It was a British rowboat coming from a ship in the sound he could not see. So this is his first spy mission. He's caught before he gets away. He has notes in the heels of his shoe, clearly implicating him as a spy. He's taken that night to General Howe, the commander of the British forces, and without any further ado, he's condemned to be hung the next day. The next morning, he asks for a Bible. He's refused it. He writes two letters, one to a brother and one to a good friend. They're destroyed by the British. We don't, n nothing of that has come through. The next morning at 11 o'clock, he's marched up a dirt road, and he's hung on an apple tree next to the road, where just like the early Christians who were crucified, his body is left exposed to the weather for days, as a warning to those around him who would consider spying for the colonies. So, here's a young guy, 21 years old, has just begun living life, never in a major battle. He was not a success at anything, if you look at success in the military sense. And he was an, a total uh, loss or uh, unsuccessful as a spy as well. But we remember him for the last words he uttered because his 
point of view, being caught, knowing the short young life was over, his point of view was, and his words were, which were communicated by one of the British officers to American officers right after he was executed at a truce where they were discussing things, one of the British officers told his American friend, the one who tried to get him not to be a spy, told him what he had said and how he had died and how much the British officer respected him. But his words and the reason he's famous today and there's statues of him in New York and Connecticut and some other places because he said, I regret that I have but one life to live or to lose to give for my country. This guy was only 21 years old. But his perspective in becoming a spy was, I'm serving my country. And his perspective when he was losing his short life was, my only regret is that I couldn't lose another or another or another on behalf of my country and my countrymen. You know, what an example. And remember, Nathan Hale was a guy who called on the name of Christ but did all this in the name of just a new country, a country the United States never mentioned in the Bible, by the way. No promises of future glory in the Bible. Who did it for the freedom of a young nation that would come like other nations do in the times of earth, come and go. And I read that and I wonder for myself and for you, do we have, do we have even a shadow of that same kind of patriotism, love of our father's land that motivates us to do the ignoble, the lowly sometimes, the despised chores like he did, and give your life either ultimately as a martyr or just day to day in the things of life you and I wouldn't choose to do normally. But we do them because we're citizens of heaven with heaven's calling, with love for our father's land, our own heavenly home country motivating us in the way we live and therefore in the way we die. See, what a great example he was for us. Just like Abraham, I'm a citizen, but I'm passing through. While I'm here, I'm going to serve the interests of my homeland, my citizens, and in our case, our king. What a great example. Let's pray. Lord, I'm just struck by the example of a young guy still trying to figure out up from down, I'm sure, in some things, but who, Lord, had a clear understanding of serving you and serving others. And, Lord, I'm just struck how easy it is to become like Lot, not to pick on him, Lord, but to become like the person who settles down in the place that we're not supposed to call home. And, Lord, the truth is, as ones who live for short or long time in the United States, we are blessed abundantly in material wealth and in freedom. But, Lord, probably not any more than Abraham who said this earth was not his home. He was looking for your heavenly city, the new Jerusalem. Lord, help us not to forget that we are first and foremost citizens of heaven that King Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, holds ultimately all authority and that it is to him primarily and ultimately that we must give allegiance. And help us to live life, Lord, as Paul did, as those commissioned by heaven itself, by the King of glory, and see ourselves as ambassadors who are sharing the message of the gospel, a message of hope for those folks who are still citizens 
in the kingdom of darkness, Lord. Use us to move them out of, this, out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of your beloved Son, the kingdom of light. Lord, help us never to forget earth is not our home. Heaven is our home. Help us to labor and to wait for that day. In Jesus' name, amen.